A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you all the top news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, the podcast editor. Welcome to the show. This week, we're also joined by New Scientist reporters Michael LePage and Ibrahim Sawal. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. Coming up on the show today, we're hearing about one of the great biological discoveries of recent times, the finding that trees in a forest are connected by underground networks and can share resources and information through them. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Uh, It's called the Wood Wide Web. The Wood Wide Web. Uh, We've also got the latest on the COVID situation. Ibrahim is going to tell us about an amazing archaeological discovery that's older than Stonehenge and the pyramids. And we're going to hear about the new space station China is starting to build. Before all that, we have a great new scientist subscription offer this week. Get your first 12-week subscription for half price, plus get a free new scientist moon jigsaw puzzle, (laughs) normally worth $21.99. Go to newscientist.com slash puzzle to subscribe and get your free jigsaw puzzle. So this week marks 35 years since the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. In 1986, one of the reactors in the power station exploded, and the radioactive material released made it the world's worst nuclear disaster, at the time or since. 31 people died in the explosion and in the aftermath, mostly from acute radiation sickness. There have been nuclear accidents before, but nothing like Chernobyl. The fallout, or the knock-on effects of the accident, are still being felt really in the general unease many people feel about nuclear power. Yeah, I mean, of course it was a terrible disaster, but you might say it was a public health communications disaster as much as a disaster for the nuclear industry as well, because it's really been hard to pin down just how dangerous it was for human health. So as you say, only 31 people are known to have died directly Yet some figures claim there will be eventually 10,000 or more deaths as a result of Chernobyl. But this week, a paper was published showing that there don't appear to be any transgenerational effects of exposure to radiation from the Chernobyl disaster. In other words, that means that kids born to people exposed to that radiation don't themselves have mutations. Right. So the paper looked at children born to parents who were employed to clean up Chernobyl after the explosion, and the parents and the children had their genomes sequenced and found no difference in the amount of new mutations in their DNA compared to controls. So it looks like there is no impact of the disaster on subsequent generations, which is really good news. Yeah. So to discuss this, I spoke with Jerry Thomas of Imperial College London. She's a toxicologist, and she's the director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank. That's a project that stores samples from people who've developed a thyroid cancer as a result of the Chernobyl accident. You obviously saw this paper showing that there's no transgenerational effects of Chernobyl. I take it you weren't surprised by that. 
No, not surprised at all. I mean, there had been a couple of studies come out of the lifespan studies in Japan from the atomic bombings that suggested that there was no transcendental effect at all. And that is higher doses in general uh, of radiation. So the doses that we knew these people had been exposed to, it was highly unlikely there was going to be anything to see at all. Why is there such variation in the numbers that we're told about about deaths from Chernobyl as a result of radiation? It's partly people interpreting the literature without taking into into, um, account the fact that we know when we study a population, we find cases by better clinical ascertainment. So we find what we're looking for because we're looking for it, which may be nothing at all to do with exposure. There is a level of cancer in any particular population anyway. It's also just taking numbers that, you know, say the number of deaths that have occurred is this and then relating it straight back to an incident that happened in the past. And that's pretty dangerous because the only thing I can guarantee is that everybody listening to this is going to die at some point. (laughs) Uh, And so if you just don't take into account, there is a natural attrition rate with the population over time. And also the the way we diagnose changes over time as well. So that has to be taken into account. So I think I can see where people might have made um, misunderstandings uh, about the data that's out there. But all the scientific studies say that have been correctly done with epidemiology and all the rest of it show that the only thing that has gone up in the population has been an increase in thyroid cancer and only in those who were youngest at the time of exposure. So only in children. But it's frustrating, isn't it? Because we're... We're trying to get off using fossil fuel. We had loads of nuclear power stations. And yet it seems that the dangers of nuclear power have been overstated or certainly the dangers of accidents have been overstated, haven't they? Yes, absolutely. They have. And I think it's partly because people don't understand that actually the dose that you have during these accidents to the majority of the population is actually very low. For example, in the population that is living in the contaminated areas, so not within the, in the, in the exclusion zone where nobody is supposed to be living, although there are people there, um, in that area, uh, people only got over a 20-year period about the same dose as you get from one CT scan, and that was from the cesium that was deposited. So when you start to understand that, and I, I couldn't get my head around it really till I saw that figure, you start to realise, well, hang on, if it really is that low dose then why would I expect to see loads of cancer? I mean, you have to remember that the the thyroid instance is slightly different because you're looking at much higher doses to a given tissue, to a subsection of the population. So you would expect to see an increase in thyroid cancer. None of us were actually really surprised by the increase in thyroid cancer we saw either because we knew from animal studies that if you give radioiodine to developing animals, so weanlings, while their thyroid is still growing, you will see an instance in thyroid cancer. So we knew that from animal studies. It wasn't that surprising, although the speed at which we saw the increase was surprising within about four years. So you weren't surprised by the finding of this result, but you were surprised by the pickup it's got. Yeah, I think it's often because it's difficult to publish negative results because everybody likes to see a positive in, in one of the scientific journals. But actually, the negative results can be really important for society. There are people who have chosen not to have children after Chernobyl, after Fukushima and after the atomic bombs, because they were scared of the effects that there might be on their future generations. And that's a real shame to put somebody in that situation when there's no scientific evidence for it whatsoever. What's frustrating is um, we learned this after Chernobyl, that there wasn't this big increase in certainly in thyroid cancers and in other cancers. 
And yet, when after Fukushima, which released only 10% of the radiation compared to Chernobyl, we had the same uh, huge scares and, and, and sort of misinformation to public health, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, we'd actually, because it was the 25th anniversary of Chernobyl, the same year that Fukushima happened, we'd just finished doing a whole edition of a journal looking at what we hadn't learned and what we had learned from Chernobyl. And the editorial, we actually said, the one thing we haven't learned is how to communicate radiation risk. And then, you know, the rest of us had head in hands going, oh, no, here we go again. We're going to make the same mistake again. And and we did. And people died because we couldn't communicate that radiation risk effectively, which is awful. Nothing to do with radiation. No. Everything to do with the fact that we don't handle this properly. So how, what should we do? <laughs> well, we need to learn the lessons. And it's very easy to say, you know, we need to learn lessons, but we actually do really need to learn the lessons here because otherwise we could ignore using nuclear power, for example, as a climate change mitigation possibility. We may, you know, um, live to regret that in the future. But we should really look at the science and not be driven by urban myths. And unfortunately, a lot of what we feel about radiation is driven by urban myths. I mean, radiation is one of those fear factors. It pushes all the buttons. You can't smell it. You can't feel it in any way. You can't hear it. You don't know it's there. But many years later, you might get a cancer. So it pushes all those nasty fear buttons that we have as humans. And I can understand why people are fearful of it. But I'm a toxicologist by training. So I know that, you know, everything has a dose response curve. And we have to just accept that at low doses, And after all, we are all exposed to radiation all of the time living on this planet. We don't suffer any noticeable health consequences. And I think if we could get that through our head and understand that these accidents actually are low dose accidents, I think we might be getting somewhere. But a lot of people are fearful of radiation and they have it wound up in their heads about um, atomic bombs as well. So there is this natural reticence to wanting to believe it can be a power for the good rather than a power for the bad. That was Jerry Thomas of Imperial College London, director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank, speaking great sense about science. Yeah, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? We need to look at what the science is telling us in order to properly understand risk and, crucially, to communicate risk. Now we turn to the COVID situation. Michael, you've been covering what's happening in India, which is pretty devastating. Yes, this is the worst outbreak in any country since the pandemic began. We've had day after day where the reported number of cases has set a new record for the most daily cases reported by any country. Hospitals have been overwhelmed. And because deaths lag behind infections, the number of daily deaths is going to keep increasing for at least another three weeks. How does this compare with what's happened in other countries? On paper, it actually doesn't look that bad. So for every million people, India is reporting just over 200 daily cases and two deaths, which is actually quite similar to the current numbers in countries such as the US, Germany and Canada. And for comparison, in January, the UK was reporting nearly 900 daily cases and 20 deaths for every million people. But presumably an issue here is underreporting. Yes, the numbers of reported cases and deaths in just about every country are underestimates. But in India, the gap is probably greater than in most Western countries. So the true number of daily cases could be closer to 10 million than the 380,000 or so being reported, which is just staggering. And John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times has estimated that the death toll is at least 10 times higher than the official figures. Oh, God. 
And the healthcare system just can't cope with that number of sick people. No, there have been so many awful stories of people desperately trying and failing to get their sick relatives into hospitals. The The problem is that India has just two critical care beds for every 100,000 people compared with 34 in the US, for instance. So why are we seeing this crisis now? What's driving it? Uh, I think the main reason it's happening is that authorities failed to act early to stop the situation getting out of control. So new variants of the coronavirus, including the B117 variant from the UK or the Kent variant, are definitely hard to to control. They've been causing cases to surge in many countries around the world, but most countries have imposed restrictions that have stopped things getting too bad, just as we did in the UK. You know, with the first wave in India, imposed a strict lockdown very early on. With the second wave, it's been very reluctant to impose any restrictions, and we've seen a result of that. So basically, what happened in Brazil and the UK and other countries where the virus has gotten out of control is now happening in India again. Exactly. Unfortunately, some political leaders still don't seem to understand that if you let exponential growth go unchecked, then the numbers soon start getting really big, really fast. That's what exponential growth is. And then it takes tougher restrictions to get things under control than if you acted earlier. And in the meantime, many more people end up sick or dead. What about vaccination? How's that going? Well, so far, less than 10% of people have in India have had a first dose. And it's been estimated that even if India keeps all the vaccine doses it's making locally for its own people, it will take until November to vaccinate all adults. So vaccination is going to come a bit too late to help much this time round. But hopefully if it is rolled out uh, successfully, it will prevent or at least limit a third wave in India. And just to end on a positive note, globally, the one billionth vaccine dose was given sometime in the past week. Obviously, there's a long way to go and a lot of poor countries still missing out. But that's just an incredible achievement. Now it's time for a short break to hear a message from our colleague Sam Wong. Have you ever wondered why we need to spend a third of our lives asleep? Or what would happen if we destroyed the moon? In a new video series for new scientists, I'm going to be tackling the biggest questions in science. Are we alone in the universe? Can science cure your hangover? And why do cats go crazy for catnip? We're posting new videos every week on the New Scientist YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash new scientist and click subscribe so you don't miss an episode of Science with Sam. There's lots of space news to catch up on this week. We saw SpaceX launch another crewed mission to the International Space Station, and there's also some news for future space stations. Let's hear all about it from our space reporter, Leah Crane. So China is launching the first portion of its brand new space station. China's had two small space stations, but this one's going to be a bit bigger, um, about the size of Mir, which is the Soviet space station that came right before the International Space Station. So it's going to be about a quarter of the size of the International Space Station. And yeah, it'll be the Chinese space station, which which is great. But um, I, I kind of feel sad that there's not going to be an International Space Station after 2025. Well, that's not set in stone no. yet. Um, it's It seems probable that Russia is going to stop its partnership with the International Space Station just because they're partnering with China. But it's possible that the U.S. will still fund it for a ways or at least try to sort of contract some of it out to commercial providers rather than NASA paying for the whole thing. So why why has uh, the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, transferred their allegiance to China from the U.S.? I don't know about transferred their allegiance, <laughs> but <laughs> there is definitely a sort of waning of the partnership with the U.S., 
And part of that is because um, Roscosmos doesn't have any money. They have a lot <laughs> of expertise, but the Russian government just hasn't been giving them much funding at all for a, way, a while now. And so what China's getting is a bunch of space expertise and particularly space station expertise. And they're willing to just pour money into their space station. So Russia's getting that funding that they haven't had for a long time now. So what do they want to do on the new space station, the Chinese space station? It is, as of now, just going to be research. The first module that's being sent up right now is not a science lab module. It's the main one with the living quarters and the power and propulsion and the life support. But it'll be followed by two other modules. And both of those have all this space to house scientific experiments the same sort that go up to the ISS now. But what about the ge- sort of geopolitical part of it? You know, getting getting themselves a, a nice shiny base in space. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some of that. There's always, with any major space project, there's always a degree of nationalistic posturing that happens. Um, whether it's China or the US or Russia, everyone does it. Um, so it is sort of, showing the rest of the world that they have this capability. For some, that might seem kind of threatening because the Chinese military isn't really separate from its space program. But as of now, there's no indication that that the space station is for anything other than science and and some prestige. I, I also just saw that China has launched a spacecraft to test technology for resource acquisition. So it's going to try and uh, it's going to simulate catching celestial bodies, small celestial bodies, which basically means asteroid mining, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't know uh, much about that particular mission. I personally am a bit wary of the idea of asteroid mining in general, just because it's so much easier to mine stuff on Earth. Um, and asteroid mining doesn't really get useful until you have a full-blown space-based economy and yeah. you're mining stuff on asteroids for use in space. Yeah. Um, I don't know that the demand is there for that. No, not in quite. In fact, I know the demand is not there for that. <laughs> okay. And and meanwhile, back on Earth, um, there's been a bit of a ding-dong between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. What What's going on there? As part of NASA's Artemis program, they are contracting with a private team to build the lander that'll take the astronauts down to the surface of the moon in ostensibly 2024. Although I don't think anyone really believes that timeline anymore, (laughs) Um, uh, including the government, they're reassessing it. But NASA was expected to select two private providers because that's generally what NASA has done in the past because they want to fuel some competition and they don't want to create a monopoly on anything. And there were three contenders, Blue Origin, SpaceX, and a smaller company called Dynetics that had sort of the first phase of this contract to develop. And NASA ended up only selecting SpaceX to build the actual lander. And obviously the Blue Origin and Dynetics people are not happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. And according to NASA, the reason it was done was purely funding. They didn't have the money to fund two. In fact, on the payment schedule they had agreed to, they didn't have the money to fund one. So they renegotiated a new payment plan with SpaceX. So 
both Blue Origin and Dianetics have filed complaints with the government um, stating that the process was unfair. Yeah, well, I mean, they are both businesses, aren't they? Um, well, they're all businesses, SpaceX, Dynetics and Blue Origin. But I kind of am maybe being too idealistic. But, you know, if you take these billionaires at their word that Elon Musk is just all he wants to do is create a, you know, make us a, a two planet civilization and Bezos wants to get all heavy industry off planet, then why don't they collaborate and do those things faster together? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I am not sure if that would run foul of anti-monopoly laws, actually, because there are so few companies that are doing that. Um, but also, it seems like they just really hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> and in general, that would go badly. Now on to the Total Perspective Vortex, where we look at something that significantly changes our perspective. And this week, it's in archaeology. Specifically, it's the discovery of structures across the northern Arabian Peninsula that are older than Stonehenge, older even than the pyramids. Ibrahim, you've been looking into this. What are they? Well, they're large rectangular stone structures called mustatils, which is named after the Arabic word for rectangle. On the shorter sides, they have a distinctive head on one end and an entrance on the other, and they're connected by long, low walls that could be over 600 metres long. There were first reports of them in the 1970s, but little work has really been done to investigate them. So how many are there? There are lots of them. The researchers found twice as many mustatils than previously documented, with over 1,000 individuals spanning across 200,000 square kilometres of northwest Arabia. Oh, well, that's a really big area. So what were they for and how were they made? Well, they're mainly built from piled up sandstone, some actually weighing in excess of 500 kilograms. Within the heads of these structures, there are chambers filled with cattle skulls and horn fragments, so it's thought that they were used as part of ancient rituals from an early cult. With the sheer size and number of the structures, it's thought that communities would come together to build mustatils as part of an event, but there's no evidence they would have stayed long. It could be that they were built in relation to the environment, because at the time, what are now the deserts of Arabia were once actually greener, but droughts are quite frequent. So cattle may have been herded, not necessarily within the mustatils, and offered to the gods to protect the land for the future. But there's still a lot to learn about why they're there. And how do we know how old they are? Well, they radiated carbon dated some of the skull fragments, and it showed that they were from at least 5,300 to 5,000 BC, predating Stonehenge by 2,500 years, meaning this may be the earliest large-scale monumental ritual landscape ever identified. And the idea is that they were all built by the same group of people who lived across that vast area? Potentially. It may have been that different families of nomads or pastoralist communities around Saudi Arabia from the same cult or religion actually came together to build them to maintain social bonds and practice this ritual. So the dynamic of that area would have been completely different to what it is now. And it would have been amazing to see what it was like. So you say that these were first discovered in the 70s, but we haven't heard so much about these things before. Why is that when we're so familiar with places like Stonehenge and the pyramids? It may just be the lack of attention it's received. Large rectangles in the deserts might not have been as interesting as the pyramids, for example. But this research has proved that they're a lot more than just simple stone rectangles. They're more complicated and more important than previously thought. But as I say, there's still much to learn. So maybe in the next 10 years, these mustatils will soon be as popular as Stonehenge or the pyramids. 
Rowan, you've written the cover story for the magazine this week, which we've given the provocative title, Are Trees Sentient? (laughs) So can you tell us about it? Yeah, so it's an interview with uh, a legendary biologist called Suzanne Simard. Uh, She discovered that trees in a forest are connected by an underground fungal network and that they can communicate and share resources through this network. Yeah, it's so cool. And as you said earlier, it's what has been called the Wood Wide Web. Yeah. And even if you've not heard of Suzanne Simard, you will have probably encountered her work and certainly her influence. Uh, She was the basis for one of the characters in Richard Powers' novel, The Overstory, from a couple of years ago. And her whole work was a huge influence on the movie Avatar with the home tree and all that, you know, information network or communication network in that. Yeah, probably a lesser uh, result of her inspiration, but she also inspired an episode of The Magic School Bus, which my children really love, (laughs) which is all about communication between trees. Oh, that's Um, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, she's just published a new book, which is part memoir and part forest detective story. Yeah, we spoke about that too. Um, She's an absolute legend. I had a great chat with her about whether trees are not only sentient, but if they have wisdom. Uh, We'll play a little bit now of this conversation. And I started by asking her to summarise the key discovery she made. I guess the key finding is that, you know, that trees are in a connected society. It's a physical network um, and that they trade and collaborate and interact in really sophisticated ways as a society, as a cohesive, uh, holistic society. Whereas my training and the way I think we viewed forests or any plant community prior to that, at least in you know the Western thinking, was that plants are not collaborative and linking. I mean, that I mean, it seems so simplistic now that I'm as I'm speaking about it, but you know the whole industry of agriculture and forestry is based on that premise that that these plants just compete for resources and that you know that the bigger you are and the more dominant the, the are you are that's what we want that that's what we aim for in our crop production um, but it doesn't actually work that way and when we force it that way we see the system start to unravel your experiments have shown that not only do trees share food with each other but they favor their children They can transfer food through their roots and through the fungal network to their kin. So do we know how they recognise their kin? Well, I don't completely know, but I assume it's by chemicals because um, when we allow our kin seedlings to connect with the mother trees or their neighbours with their siblings through these mycorrhizal networks that, that they, that we get these kin responses much more dramatically. So it'll change the rooting behavior. It changes their, their chemistry, like the, the nutrition of the plants. We were able to trace that carbon um, in a few studies, you know, so we would label a mother or a sibling plant, and then we would see the carbon would transmit to a, a kin seedling, but not to a stranger planted nearby, that there would be a, a choice of interacting by sending carbon to kin versus strangers. You know, and also like just if you look at like the sophisticated interactions between plants and, and some of that happens through the network, some of it happens through, you know, other kinds of networks in, in forests. For example, you know, there's transmission of information through the air as well. And their ability to respond and change their behaviors according to this information all speaks to wisdom to me. Um, Mm. And, you know, the fact that we have 
uh, resilient systems. Um, they're pretty resilient, although we're really testing that with climate change. Um, they're resilient because they have these intelligent structures and uh, evolved systems. What would you like people to do after reading your book? Um, well, I want them to feel to want to go to the forest. That's the most simple. Yeah, I really thing. want to go. It's really made. I mean, I want to go to the forest anyway, but even more, I want to live in the forest after reading your book. Yeah, just go and be with it, right? Like and love yeah. it and care for it and talk to it and show your respect for it. And um, and I think that is the foundation of changing our behaviors, right? You know, because we are, you know, we, we have a mass movement towards cities. We've got social media. We're electronic. With the pandemic, we've been stuck inside. You know, it, and really, you know, to care for something, you, you have to know it or, or to really care for it. We need to know it and get back to it and appreciate it. And I think it will inspire thinkers, um, activists, uh, angos, people to fight for change. And we need that change to happen. So that that's ultimately, you know, what I would like to happen. But it's going to be a step by step process. And it starts with connecting back with nature. You get a bit carried away there about going to live in the woods. <laughs> well, yeah, don't don't you ever feel like going to live in the woods? Anyone? Is it just me? <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind going to live in 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 the sort of woods in the the movie Avatar. I think that's a, sort of the best evocation of an alien world I've seen in in any movie. It yeah. it reminds me too. My favorite one of my favorite books as a kid was called My Side of the Mountain, and and in it, a kid basically makes himself a home inside a big hollowed out tree. So I always fa like was fascinated with the idea of if I could do that, live in a live in a tree. Do read the piece in this week's magazine and on the website. We'll post a link. It's absolutely fascinating, her story and the work she's done. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Michael LePage, Ibrahim Sawal and Leah Crane. And thanks to all of you for listening. Yeah, thanks, everyone. And remember to get that free moon jigsaw puzzle with the subscription offer. Go to newscientist.com slash puzzle. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.